One more time, that's Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they were re- they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Good to see everyone this morning. Glad everyone could be out and be with us. We have some who are are uh, missing, and let's keep them in our prayers, of course. Every week, and it's an ongoing process, I begin to think about sermons, and maybe I do it a little differently than a lot of people. I may begin to think about a sermon I'm going to preach in three weeks, or whatever the case may be. And I never begin writing my sermon until I have completed the sermon in my mind. And I think about it over time, and I may see something that uh, gives me an idea of something that maybe I had not forgotten about. But when I begin to think about a sermon, I never think about a sermon uh, in the sense of what the White Oak congregation needs to hear. I think of a sermon as in what we need to know as Christians, what will help us to better be able to get to heaven? And a lot of the time, I think of something that I need. And I believe that, or as I'm thinking about this, my thought pattern is, well, if I need this, maybe someone else needs it as well. And as I consider my life as a Christian, I think preparation is one of the greatest things we still need to consider as Christians. There are too many thoughts in the religious world, uh, predominantly in the denominational world, where once someone gains salvation, then that's all they need. They're done. Nothing can cause them to lose that salvation, and nothing could be further from the truth. And that has crept its way into the Lord's church. Many people who have obeyed the gospel live in such a way that at least it seems as if they believe that there's nothing they can do to lose their salvation. And so I think preparation is something that is paramount. Now the text before us this morning is in Matthew 25. But I think to better understand that, we need to back up and go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 comes on the heels, obviously, of Matthew 23, where the Lord finished His last public discourse in the temple, and He left the temple for the last time never to return. And so then he begins to 
uh, we come into uh, 24, and as they were leaving the temple, the disciples in their effort to impress Jesus about the enormity and the grandeur of that temple begins to show him, Matthew 24 verse 1, the buildings of the temple. Now his disciples were watching as this building process still was continuing. Now, the reconstructed temple erected by Zerubbabel was still standing at the time Herod the Great came into power in Palestine under the reign of Rome. And in his commentary on Matthew, Brother Robert Taylor made this point, and I thought it was it was a great point. He said, uh, speaking of King Herod, he tore away the old little by little, speaking of the temple, and lavishly embellished each of the new parts. Work on it continued long after Herod's death. In fact, work was still being done on it at the time of the Olivet Discourse and would continue for some years thereafter. Jesus and the surveying disciples might well have observed temple workers on the job as this dynamic discourse of Matthew 24 departed the Master's lips. I want us to keep in mind the majesty of this temple. It was enormous. Some of the the building, the hewn stones, were 70 feet long, 20 feet thick. They were massive stones that erected this temple. And they paled in comparison of the original temple. It was said that when the new temple was constructed, the men lifted up their voices in, in crying in tears, the old men, because they could remember the, uh, the, uh, uh, great grandeur of the old temple, or at least they understood it from those who came before them. And the younger men who had never even seen a temple cried because of its magnificence. So the temple was magnificent. And that is why that the disciples misunderstood Christ's statement in Matthew 24, verse 2. Notice what he said. He said, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And it was then at that point they said, Well, when is the end of time coming? When's this going to happen? When's the end of time? When are you coming? They misunderstood what he was talking about. They thought he was talking about the very end of time when the world would be destroyed because in their minds... The only thing that could tear down that temple was the end of the world. It was so massive and so grand. Now from that point until verse 36 of Matthew 24, the Christ spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now how do we know that? He began to give signs of the coming destruction. He began to give instruction on what to do when it came. If you're on the uh, the rooftop, come down, flee into the mountains, don't gather up any of your belongings, go straight to the mountain. And when someone says, here is the Christ, or there is the Christ, he said, don't believe it. Now we need to ask ourselves a question. If the world is coming to an end, what mountain can we flee to that we can be saved? When Christ comes back, Peter said, this world will be burned up in all things that are in it. So, from Matthew 24, verse 1, All the way through verse 35, he's talking about the coming destruction that happened in A.D. 70. Now let's remember, he was about 33 years old when he died. 
So he would have died in about A.D. 36 or 37. And so the destruction of Jerusalem happened about 30 years later. So we know that he was talking about something that would happen soon. Now, he gets through with verse 35. He shifts gears. He comes into verse 36 and he makes this statement. But of that day and hour no man knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father. And it was at that point he transitioned into talking about and answering the question they had asked. Well, when's it going to happen? When's it going to come? When are you returning? When's this world going to be destroyed? At 36, he begins to answer that question. And he began to tell a series of parables. Now, the point of the passage is, be prepared. It's preparation. He made a statement recorded in Matthew 25, verse 13, that is almost identical to Matthew 24, verse 36. He said, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The message of the parable is, be prepared. Be prepared because you don't know when I'm coming. I'm telling you when the temple will be destroyed. I'm telling you when Jerusalem will be sacked, Titus will come in. Of course, he didn't use his name, but history tells us. Titus came in, conquered and destroyed Jerusalem. The temple was absolutely done away with. All the records in the temple done, effectively destroying the Jewish religion. And secular history tells us not a single Christian died in the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Jesus gave the signs. He gave the warnings. And He told them what to do. But when He transitioned to the end of this world, He didn't give them any times. He said, watch. No man knows. Only my Father which is in heaven. The message of the parable is to be ready because we do not know when He will return. The title of the sermon this morning is ready or not, He will return. And let's begin with the communication. That's our first point. Christ began speaking of the kingdom of God. In fact, He said, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened. Now I want us to notice that word then. That word then tells us that what's about to be said is connected to just what was said. And what was said was, the world's coming to an end and... No one knows when that day is going to happen, so be prepared. And so that's what he's talking about. Jesus could not have been more clear about the destruction that he spoke of in the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 35, because he said it will happen in the lifetimes of the generation standing in front of him, Matthew 24, verse 34, making it impossible to be a reference to the final day. People get those mixed up. They turn them around. How many people have you heard talk about the signs of the end of the world? There'll be wars and rumors of wars and this and that. I remember when the very first Gulf War began to happen, a friend of mine or an acquaintance of mine a year ahead of me in high school, we were attending Tennessee Tech together and he became so scared and so upset that he went and found him some religion because he was afraid that the world was going to come to an end because of Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35. That's already happened. 
the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple already took place. I spoke with him. I tried to talk to him about it, but he was so afraid that he wouldn't listen. Now, brethren, I'll be 49 in December, and that's been a long time ago. And the Lord still has not returned. And it's sad when I think about people who misunderstand very clear teaching in the Bible. Christ said those events would happen in the lifetimes of that generation. It happened about 30 years later. Some of those people to whom He was speaking was alive and saw what happened. If they were Christians, they made it out of the city. If they were not, they may not have made it out of the city. Now based on that fact, And if there be no warning signs of His second coming, verse 36, He cautioned them in chapter 25 to be ready. It is no accident that the parables that come in chapter 25 are all about preparation. And the first one is the one we want to speak about today. The parable of the virgins. In the midst of His teaching, we learn His return is like the return of a bridegroom. So that tells us that thinking about His return to this world and all the destruction that comes with it, there should also be merriment. There should be happiness. There should be people looking forward to His return if we are prepared. That's what He's trying to get across. That's the message. For His hearers to better understand the nature of His kingdom, He compared it to ten virgins and ten lamps. For us to be able to understand like they did, I think we need a picture in our minds of what took place during the average Jewish wedding ceremony. Marriages were often and almost exclusively arranged by parents. What would happen? A young boy would uh, be growing up, be young, five or six years old or maybe younger, maybe an infant. And so the parents of that son would begin to look around. And they would locate a family who they would want to be related to. And if so happened they had a girl that was approximately that same age, could have been younger, they would get together and make an arrangement. And the arrangement was when the children got to a certain age, they would be married. Now, if any of you have ever seen the play or the movie, Fiddler on the Roof, That is exactly what happened in that play or that movie. And that was a Jewish custom. And so it was happening even into the 19th century and may still happen sometime today. Now the groom and his future wife, they did not see each other across a room at some sort of a gathering. They didn't catch one another's eye. They didn't migrate to each other, began to talk, decide they wanted to date, And then at some point, decided that they loved each other, wanted to make an engagement, and then waited on the engagement. That's not at all how it happened. What happened was, the arrangement was made, and as the young man began to grow up, all Jewish boys learned not only the spiritual education, but the colloquial one. They were taught a trade, and usually by the father. And so as the boy began to mature, and grow into adulthood, he was learning this trade, and when he became proficient at it, 
he would go off on his own into business to make money with his knowledge. Now, he might even partner with his father. And as he did that, he would immediately begin to build himself a house. And as he was building the house, he was building that house so that he could get married. Now, he might be in his late teens or early 20s. Depending on the trade of which he had learned, he might even be in his 30s. So he's building this house and he's waiting and he's preparing himself and he's waiting for that day when that house can be finished and he can go to his bride's home and get his bride. What's the, what's the girl doing all this time? She's not just sitting around. She's preparing to be a woman. She's preparing to be a mother. She's preparing to be a wife. And she's learning those things from the older women around whom she lives. Isn't that how it's supposed to be done? Titus chapter 2. The older ladies instruct the younger ones. The older men instruct the younger men. She's learning the, the graces of womanhood. She's learning how to be a wife, a mother, how to love her husband, how to love her children how to live the way she's supposed to live, and she is preparing herself in the same way that the young man is preparing himself. He's building a house, but he's learning how to be a husband. He's learning how to love his wife, how to love his children. And he's learning that from the older men. And so that is the process by which these people became married. When his house was built, he would go with with a group of his friends get his bride, they would have a parade going right through the middle of town, and they would go to his house, they would be married, and now they are a family. That is what the people listening to this parable understood. What they would go into and what they would see from the bride's father's house to the bridegroom's house would be some Ladies waiting, some young virgins. We might call them bridesmaids. And they would be there with lit lamps and they would usher in the party into the home where they were going. So now, the parable means a little more when we understand the importance of everybody involved. Now, when we look at the parable, we see that we have ten virgins, but they're divided into groups, aren't they? You have five groups. You have five people into two groups, so you have ten. The first ones we notice are the careful ones. Now, this is a picture of a Jewish wedding. We're seeing the preparation, we're seeing the duties, and the the ten bridesmaids understood and knew the bridegroom was coming. So they had to be prepared. It's very important, the position they held. Now, instead of taking a chance and missing out on the festivities and the celebration, we have five careful bridesmaids. We have five careful virgins. Not only do they have oil in their lamps, but they also have additional oil because we don't know for sure when the bridegroom's coming. What was it Jesus said in the previous chapter? No man knows but my Father in heaven 
When are you coming back? What are the signs of your coming back? When's this temple going to be destroyed? They were, they were misunderstanding everything. The temple would be destroyed in A.D. 70. Christ would come back, we don't know when, but be prepared. And so then we have the parable. Have your oil ready. Be ready when the bridegroom comes. And so to be ready, these five careful virgins had enough oil in case they needed to replenish. But there were some other uh, uh, maidens, weren't there? You had the five careful, you had the five careless. The careless, on the other hand, and Jesus called them foolish, they brought no extra oil with them. We might say they were not prepared for the long haul. Now, what we want to understand is we want to try to make some application to our Christian lives here. That's the point of the parable. Preparation. Does everything in life happen as we want it to happen? Does everything in life go as easily as we would like for it to go? Are there ever any changes that we face in this life? Do we have health problems? Do we have financial problems? Are there things in life that happen to us that we do not necessarily want to happen to us? Well, of course it does. I used to tell my girls growing up, life is hard. If it weren't, they'd call it something else. They wouldn't call it life, would they? And so we have to be prepared for those possibilities. These five careless were not prepared. They simply came prepared for what they thought the time frame was. Now there may have been a generally understood amount of time it took to get from point A to point B because weddings were not uncommon. They were very common. And that's why Jesus used a wedding. They were very common. That's why He used the parable of the sower, of the seed. It was very common. So they were working off of things that normally happened in this life. No one looks around and all of a sudden some kind of a financial crisis hits you personally at your own home and everybody says, well, I was prepared for that. I've got about 100000 in the bank. It doesn't matter. I'll overcome. That's not normally how it happens, is it? But financial crises come. Health crises come. Sometimes we lose people we love and and we're not ever prepared for that. So the careless were not uh, prepared. Now there's a great difference between the foolish and the wise. The wise virgin, virgins understood uh, that there were uncommon circumstances. And so we have to look at that. And we need to pattern our lives after these wise virgins. If the bridegroom came, when expected, they were ready. If he came when at an unexpected time, they would still be ready. The, the foolish virgins understood those same truths. That's the sad part when we look into Christianity today. We look into those who we know, those who we know to be faithful, those who we know need to be more faithful, those who we know who are no longer faithful. There's a common ground there. We all have the same truth. We all have the same opportunities, but we're not taking advantage of those truths. And that's what the foolish virgins were doing. They knew that not every time there was a certain amount of time elapsed. They were wanting to take the easy way out. There's not an easy way out, are there? Is there? The ten virgins in the parable represent those who will be present when the bridegroom comes. And that's all of us. We don't know when He's coming. So we have to be prepared. Even among those who believe He will return. Many are not prepared. And we need to be prepared. 
So at this point in the parable, we see Jesus now transitions from the communication to the anticipation of the bridegroom. That's our second point. The ten virgins began to wait. As they waited, they became sleepy. The the text tells us that they slumbered and they slept. What they did was, and if we, we look up the meanings of the word, the word indicated that they dozed, they nodded, they dozed. They didn't go to bed. Now that's good news for a lot of us. That's good news for a lot of us who, when the preacher goes too long and we nod off, that's okay because we need the rest. And I think it's important to understand they were not blamed for resting. They were not rebuked for resting. They didn't go to bed. They simply nodded as they waited in anticipation. In fact, this dozing helped them. It gave them some some extra energy, some strength. And they did all they could do to be prepared, or at least five of them did. As the parable continued, the wait turned into waking. There was a cry, a call came out, the bridegroom's coming. And so the ten virgins quickly became awakened. They got up and it states that they went out to meet Him. All of them went out to meet Him. Now we are reminded of Jesus' words. Five were wise, five were foolish. Though His exact coming is a surprise to all of us, preparation is still absolutely necessary. Aren't we in that same situation today? Aren't we in the same situation of having to be prepared? Paul warned this, Acts 17, beginning with 30. And at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why? Why, brother Paul, should we do that? He says, because he hath appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he has raised him from the dead. And he's talking about Jesus. Jesus told his disciples in chapter 24 of Matthew, I'm coming, but nobody knows when that is except the Father in heaven. There's no question whether or not a day like that's coming. The only question is, when is it coming? And we don't have the answer to that. We're not given the answer. If we were living in A.D. 50, we'd have the answer to when the temple was going to be destroyed, when the destruction would come. It's going to come in 20 years. Okay, I can be ready. I can be making preparation because I know exactly in 20 years. And so what that means is I really don't have to make preparation until a year before. I'll start making preparation a year before or two years before or five years before. But see, when we're talking about our spiritual health, we have to constantly be prepared. Just like the troop of virgins in our passage, we don't know the time. That's why we need to understand the absolute necessity of preparation. We read about the communication of the kingdom. We read about the anticipation of the bridegroom. And then finally, and this is our third point, Jesus spoke of the ramifications surrounding the waiting virgins. There was a dilemma among the virgins. They all went out. They rose up, it says, and they trimmed their lamps. Now what it meant to trim a lamp was they trimmed their wick and they filled the lamp with oil. 
A lot of those lamps were, were made of clay. And they were really kind of in the design that we see uh, a lot of uh, uh, mythological fantasy films or cartoons of the, the genie in the lantern. They really kind of uh, uh, depicted those like what the Jews used. It was kind of a lamp. It was longer. It had a spout on it. And they would have a wick, and they would trim that wick. They would cut it off. Anyone who's ever used an oil lamp understands that at some point, or a lantern, you have to trim that wick. Does the does the oil always last? You put what my grandmother used to call coal oil. You put coal oil or kerosene in your lamp, or whatever it may be, and you have to trim that wick every once in a while, and you have to refill that lamp. But you have to have coal oil to refill it, don't you? They didn't have it. So in the process of doing that, <clears throat> the foolish virgins, virgins, they came to them and, and they wanted oil. They didn't have the necessary oil to refill it. Now, the New King James Version translates their statement, our lamps are going out. What was happening was their, their wicks were flickering and they were about to go out and they needed some oil. Well, it seems as we read the passage, the foolish virgins were just as surprised as they were alarmed at the sight of their lamps beginning to flicker. Isn't it possible for professing Christians to go a whole life believing in their hearts that they're prepared to meet God and then on that day find themselves unprepared? That's what the, the parable depicts for us. So we have to make sure we're prepared. We have to dedicate our lives to being prepared. I think it is the case more often than not. A person will meet God unprepared because of a lack of effort on his or her part. Of course, there's always that stubborn individual who chooses not to change even though they understand they're not meeting God's requirements. Upon realizing their lack of preparation... They came to the wise virgins and asked them for some oil. Now, it is here in the parable that we see the determination of those who are prepared. Hearing the request, the wise said, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Did the wise withhold oil from the foolish because they wanted to be mean and ugly to them? Not at all. In fact, from the parable, we understand they cared for them. They said, go buy oil. <clears throat> they didn't tell them, no, forget it, I'm not giving you anything. They said, we can't give you oil, we'll run out, go buy oil. We can't transfer faithfulness to anyone. But we can encourage them to be faithful. We can encourage them to study the Bible more. We can encourage them to be prepared and to put a greater effort into their preparation. No, they weren't being ugly. Uh, the wise wanted them to be able to be prepared. And that's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 6 verse 5. Help, help your fellow man carry his own burden or carry his burden. Help him with that. But there's also burdens that we have to carry on our own. Verse 2 of Galatians 6. <clears throat> or the other way around, Galatians 2, carry someone's burden. Galatians 5, carry your own burden. What that means is there are some burdens we can help each other with and there are some burdens we can't. We can't transfer salvation. 
We can't transfer preparation. We can't transfer any of those things. We can't, a, a, a parent can't transfer faithfulness to a child. A friend can't transfer it to another friend or anyone else for that matter. We have to gain that on our own. Paul warned this, Romans 14 verse 12, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. He also said this, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The primary responsibility of the wise was to make sure they were prepared. That's our primary responsibility. We've used the analogy of, of the plane instruction before you take off. The, the uh, <clears throat> steward is, or the steward, I guess it's a flight attendant now is, is politically correct. The oxygen mask comes down and don't try to put it on your friend before you put it on yourself. You put it on yourself and then you help someone else. And that's what we do in Christianity. I have to become a Christian and be faithful before I can ever help someone else. And that's a reason for a lot of reasons. Who's going to listen to someone who's not being faithful themselves? How can we help direct someone? How can I give someone a direction when I don't know the direction? I have to be faithful first. Matthew recorded for us and the door was shut. Now, the shutting of the door represented security, untold joy, and blessedness for the wise virgins. They were going in to where it was safe. And when the faithful enter into heaven, they're going to hear from the Savior those wonderful words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, Matthew 25, 21 through 23. In complete contrast to that, the shut door meant something else for those who were foolish. They couldn't go into the safety. They couldn't go into the joy. They couldn't go into the blessedness. They were not prepared. The Greek verb tense indicates the idea of the door being shut to stay shut. Now here's a good question. I think it's a valid one. Why was the door not open? They knocked again. They knocked and said, let me in. Didn't Jesus say this? Matthew 7, beginning with verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. What's the answer to that? The answer is this. The time of knocking and asking is not promised forever. It's only promised right now. Paul said today is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. We're promised a plan of salvation. Faith in Jesus that He is who He said He was. John 8, 24. We're promised that those who repent, Acts 2, 38, and are baptized shall be saved. We're promised those who make the great confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Acts 8, verse 37, and go down into the water and are baptized. They'll be saved. We're promised by the words of Peter, 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism doth also now save us. Not to put in the way of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. We're guaranteed and we're promised the faithful shall enter into heaven. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Matthew 10.22 That's what we're promised. We're not promised that knocking after we've 
lost our lives or that we've gone on into eternity knocking and begging like the rich man did. We're not promised anything after that. We're only promised right now. The purpose of the entire parable is summarized in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. He had just stated that same thing in the prior chapter, verse 36. I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I prepared? Am I ready to meet God? Have I done the things necessary to do that? Do Have I put enough oil in my lamp? Have I made enough preparation? Or am I going to come knocking when it's too late? Am I going to come pleading to God, it's too late, have I not done these things? I've spoken in your name, I've done good works in your name. He said, depart from me, ye who work iniquity. I don't even know who you are. Let's ask that question. Am I ready if He comes today? Are you ready if He comes today? Consider that as we stand and as we sing.